If you would, please open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. Now, last week we saw that four days after the wall was completed, all the people assembled together uh, in the town square as one person, and they told Ezra, the high priest, to in fact bring the law of God and to read it to them. And from what we can see, what follows is that Ezra brings the law before the assembly. He stands on a platform that apparently had been constructed specifically for that purpose. He praises the Lord, that is, he prays. The people respond by lifting up their hands, by saying, Amen, Amen. They bow down, they worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. Then he opens the law. The people stand up and he reads from the law from daybreak to noon. And on the platform with him are Levites, and apparently there are Levites among the crowd, who in fact explain to the people what it is that Ezra has read to them. We're not sure exactly how this works, as I mentioned last week. Was this the explanation going on as he was reading? Uh, Did he stop and let the explanation be given? We do know there were a lot of people. We also know that the people at that point did not speak Hebrew any longer. They spoke Aramaic. And so, uh, in what would have been a classical Hebrew to them that the law was written in, they wouldn't completely understand, and so it needs to be explained to them. We would call it today, I think, exposition, as they say, this is what was written, and this is what it means and how it applies to you. So I said last week, it's been argued this is a turning point in the history of God's people, that from that point on, they are known as people of the book. Um, By the way, this is a title that is also used Uh, by the enemies of the Jews, as that they are known as people of the book. So I mentioned last week, this is amazing, and it comes after 14 years of Ezra ministering to the people, which was after 58 years after the temple was completed. It was rebuilt, which comes after the exile, which comes after centuries of apostasy, and yet it all comes together on this particular day. And in this we see great patience. I mentioned at the end of the sermon last week uh, the patient ferment of the early church, the improbable rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire, a recent book by Alan Kreider. And he notes early in the book that the church grew impressively in the first three centuries. And he writes this, The growth was odd. According to the evidence we have at our disposal, the expansion of the churches was not organized, the product of a missions program. It simply happened. Further, the growth was not carefully thought through. Early Christian leaders did not engage in debates about rival mission strategies. The Christians wrote a lot. Most of the best Greek and Latin literature, which remains from the 2nd and 3rd century, is Christian. And what they wrote is surprising. The Christians wrote treatises on patience. As one of the early church fathers wrote, patience is the very nature of God. And in contrast, the fall of Adam and Eve is a result of human impatience, unwilling to wait. And in Ezra, we see patience lived out. And then on the first day of the seventh month of that year, it results in the people asking them to have God's law read to them and explained to them. But this isn't the end of the story. As we saw last week, the people began to weep and mourn as they listened to the words of the law. They're told differently that they should not. They should, in fact, rejoice. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. 
This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be calm, or be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. And the people did exactly as Nehemiah and the Levites had told them. They had great joy. Again, there is still more. On the second day of the month, the heads of the families, along with the priests and Levites, gathered around Ezra. In other words, they want sort of a special study, a special explanation given to them, the leadership of the Jews. And they find out that coming up soon in the calendar is the Feast of Booths, in which they remember that their ancestors in the wilderness lived in tents. And they sort of reenact that in their backyards, on the roof, wherever they can find the space, and they build these booths. And so they do this. In verse 17 of chapter 8, the whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. But there is still more. At the end, we find... Day after day, from the first, to the first day to the last, that is of the Feast of Booths, it's seven days, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the feast for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. Now we come to our text today, which is chapter 9. And if you would look at it, the first four verses of Nehemiah chapter 9. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs were the Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kenani, who called with loud voices to the Lord their God. Now, let's get the time and let's do the chronology of this. The Feast of Booths ended on the 22nd day of the seventh month. Then there was an assembly on the 23rd day. Now it is the 24th day. And they begin to fast and to wear sackcloth and pour dust on their heads. Some might think that this, the order of this was reversed. In fact, fasting, the Jews were only commanded to fast one day in the year. That's before the Feast of Booths. That's the Day of Atonement. That came several weeks before the Booths. So you would think fasting, then feasting. But no, they feast. They have the Feast of Booths. And now you have the time of fasting. They fast, they wear sackcloth, they have dust on their heads. All of these are signs of sorrow, of great sorrow. They are deeply and profoundly aware of the sins of their forefathers as well as their own. So they separate themselves. You may have noticed that, that they separate themselves from all foreigners. And as we saw in Ezra, this isn't a case of xenophobia or racism. They separated themselves from those who don't worship the true God, those who are pagans. Uh, you worship false gods, we are going to worship the true God, and they separate themselves. And they confess and they worship. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. 
They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. The rest of the chapter gives us the details of these activities. But I want to point this out and we'll see it as we go along. And that is that their confession goes along with their worship. Because in fact, the confession of sin and worship are both confession. In worship we confess God's glory and God's grace. And we say this is who God is. We confess it. And in confessing our sins we say we have done wrong. God has given us his law. He's told us what to do, what not to do, and we have broken his commandments. You'll also notice that the confession of worship come after the reading of the book of the law of the Lord their God. And we're given the name of the Levites who in fact lead the congregation in these matters. Now in verse number 5 we are given additional names. But you'll notice that the Levites say in verse number 5, Stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. This is the call to worship if you wish. Scripture has been read and now it is a time for confessing God's glory and their sin. And so the people are told to stand up. It's a call to worship and they are to worship God and to confess. Some time back we looked at a theology of creation. And one of the things I pointed out throughout the series is that we must see creation and redemption together. And we don't usually do that. Um, the modern church, I think, doesn't recognize that. I think we are happy and content to say that God is the one who saves us. He takes us to heaven when this is all over. I think we're fine with that. But the idea that God made the world or that he sustains the world, I think we're not as strong on that as we should be. And we see in this prayer, and we see it throughout the book of Psalms, by the way, uh, God is the creator and God is the redeemer. And I would say that if you don't see God as creator, then you need to toss about a third of the Psalms out because they are built on the foundation that God made the world and God sustains the world. We only recognize God as creator because he saved us, because he has redeemed us. I think that's important for us to see, that we see God as creator because God has saved us. And if we do not have a strong doctrine, a strong theology of creation, our theology of redemption will get weaker and weaker to the point where now all it is is God punching our ticket and we get to go to heaven afterwards. And redemption is far more than that. Look if you would follow along as I read beginning at the end of verse number five. Blessed be your glorious name, may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant with him to give his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself which remains to this day. 
You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry land, but you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai, you spoke to them from heaven, you gave them regulations and laws that are just and good, and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. See, at the beginning here of the confession, the people affirm that God made the world, that God gives life to everything. He is a creator. But he's also a redeemer. He is the one who called Abram, which means exalted father, and changed his name, renamed him Abraham, father of many. The Lord made a covenant with him. And then he delivered, he redeemed his people out of Egypt, leading them, giving them regulations, laws, decrees, and commands, and providing them food and water. This is what God has done for his people. But it continues in verse number 16. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them. Even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion you did not abandon them in the desert. By day the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths. You gave them water for their thirst. For forty years you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers, They took over the country of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their sons as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their fathers to enter and possess. Their sons went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You handed the Canaanites over to them, along with their kings and the peoples of the land, to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your goodness. This to me is a truly amazing section because I think if I were writing this, if I were speaking this, I think I would have focused on the sins and the failures of Israel. It's mentioned at the beginning but it seems to fade into the background. I think I might have mentioned the fact that because of the rebellion and sin, God told them this generation in the wilderness will not get to go into the promised land. I think I would have mentioned that God threatened to wipe them out, but Moses said, no, don't do that. He stood in the gap. God said, I can start all over with you, and Moses said, no. I think I would have mentioned that God had sent serpents at one point to bite them, that they would die so on and so on. Instead, the focus is on God's graciousness and his generosity and his patience. 
It's really quite remarkable and moving. But now we come to verse number 26. And now they do begin to focus on the sins of their forefathers. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who had admonished them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven, and in your compassion you delivered them time after time. You warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, by which a man will live if he obeys them. Stubbornly they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you admonished them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention, so you handed them over to the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. In this passage, in this section, we get a more detailed picture of the rebelliousness of Israel. Who were disobedient and rebelled against God. They put God's law behind their backs. That is, they turned their backs on God's law. They killed the prophets who had admonished them. And they committed awful blasphemies. And as they confess, this is repeated over and over again. Here they speak of deliverers. We usually call them judges, as we find in the book of Judges. And I'm not one usually for alliteration, but I found this in one commentator. In the book of Judges, we find relapse, ruin, repentance, restoration, and rest. And then you repeat. After a time of rest, oftentimes 40 years of rest, a generation... Then they begin to worship false gods again. And God gives them over to their enemies. They cry out to God. God delivers them. And then they have a time of rest. But then they seem to repeat it all over again. And yet in this passage, for all the details of their sins and what they had done, there is an emphasis on the character of God. How he warned them. How he disciplined them. How he did not abandon them. Verse 31, in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. It is amazing. And finally, in this last section in verses 32 to 37, we have the contrast, which is very clear. A faithful God and his faithless people. Verse 32. Now, therefore, O our God, the great, mighty, and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love, Do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come upon us, upon our kings and leaders, upon our priests and prophets, upon our fathers and all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. And all this, and all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the warnings you gave them. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, 
they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our forefathers so that they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. As a result of the sins of his people, not simply this group of people, but their forefathers, the kings, the priests, the, uh, those who have come before them, they are now slaves. And for those of you who are interested in this, is a thing that's come up recently uh, in theological writings, that the Jews, even when they came back to the promised land, still saw themselves as being in exile. They still saw themselves as being slaves. You could say, wait, you're back home, you're in the promised land. But because there was a Gentile king over them, they saw themselves as still being in exile. And they say, we are in great distress. In this chapter, we hear exiles confess who God is and his graciousness. We hear them confess the sins of their forefathers and their current condition. The question is, where do we go from here? What should be done? What should they do? One could argue that they should say, you know, you were gracious to our forefathers, even though they were reprobates. You know, they did awful blasphemies. They did all these terrible things. We're, we're, we're nicer than our forefathers. So be more merciful to us than you were to them. You were the, as bad as they were. You were gracious to them. You should be gracious to us as well. But this is not what they do. Instead, they seek to renew the covenant, the covenant that God had made with his people. They pledge their allegiance to God and their obedience to him as well. So this is verse number 38. And this is sort of the key to the whole thing. In view of all this, that is their worship and their confession, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. This is really worth noting because this is very different than the, what has been done before. The first time that God made a covenant well, with Abraham, he had him sacrifice animals and divide them in half and pass through them. But where the covenant with Israel came into being was at Mount Sinai. The Lord said to him, to Moses, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Uh, I'm sorry, this is uh, to Abraham. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged them in halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. This is the covenant with Abraham. But in Exodus, then Moses sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said, we will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. By the way, we just had communion. This is the blood of the new covenant. Well, this is the old covenant that God made through Moses with his people. And the blood is sprinkled on the people. There are times later on when the covenant will be renewed. But it's usually done orally. The Josiah uh, renews the covenant and says, we're going to do this. Here, we have it put in writing. They're going to write down. 
we are going to do what God says. They renewed their, uh, their obedience, their allegiance to God. And it was to be signed. Their leaders, the uh, Levites, the priests, that is those who represent the people in general, they are going to sign this document. Just think a minute. What's the most important thing you've ever signed? Um, and think of the weight of that moment when you're signing. If you're buying something, it seems like you're signing your life away. Um, when you enter into marriage and you sign. Here they are saying, we're going to keep God's law. I think it's a weighty moment. It's a great responsibility. And if you weren't feeling enough pressure at that moment, if you look at chapter 10 and the first 27 verses, we are given the names of the people who signed this document. I mean, it's bad enough to say I signed it, but now there's a list. Here's a record of the people who signed this agreement. Look, if you would, to verse number 28 of chapter 10, because there is more. The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of their God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who were able to understand, all these now join their brothers, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. Yes, the leaders signed, but the people also orally, they affirmed, we are going to do this. And they did so with an oath, but also with a curse. And the curse is, if we don't do these things that we promise to do, may God do the things that are listed in the book of Deuteronomy. May God bring plagues upon us, send us back into exile, if we do not do what we said we would do. And what follows are very specific matters. And I would say they are specific to their situation. That if you and I were to renew the covenant, these probably would not be issues that we would bring up. But they've come out of exile, they're in the land, and there are very specific issues that they're very sensitive about that they, very, they need to be very careful about. And they mention them very specifically. First of all, verse 30, no intermarriage with pagans. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. Secondly, no breaking of the Sabbath. And they will observe the Sabbath of years. Verse 31, when the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath day or on any holy day. Every seventh year we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. That's what the law commands. The third is giving the temple tax. Verse 32, we assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God. And then lastly, the rest of it is providing for the temple system. Verse 33, for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, new moon festivals, and appointed feasts, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the duties of the house of our God. 
We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all our trees and of our new wine and oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites. For it is the, Levite, it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes. And the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God, to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and oil to the storerooms where the articles for the sanctuary are kept and where the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the singers stay. We will not neglect the house of our God. Please keep this passage in mind because as we get to chapter 13, we will find that there's some serious issues that people aren't in fact doing what they should do. As I was going through this passage, I couldn't help but think of something written in Psalm 50. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my laws or take my covenant on your lips? You hate my instruction and cast my words behind you. This is not the case with these people. They, in fact, have embraced God's law. They've been taught by Ezra for the last 14 years. They've responded to Nehemiah's call to rebuild the city. They've called on Ezra to read the book of the law to them and have it explained by the Levites. They have confessed who God is and what they have done. They now want to renew the covenant. They want to take his covenant on their lips. I told Gia this yesterday that I, I struggled with this passage not because I found it difficult, but there's a thought that kept intruding into my thinking and was pushing everything else aside and I, I finally had to push it aside so I could get through the sermon prep and then now bring it in at the end. The thing that I was struck by as I went through this is that confession of sin is to be done in the context of worship. And worship is saying, this is who God is. See, confession isn't just about me. And somehow, it's so ironic that in confessing that we are sinners, we make ourselves the center of it. So we sin in our confession. We make ourselves the center rather than saying, God, you are gracious and you are faithful. You are generous. You have not abandoned us. Worship is to be about God. And it is within that context that we can then say, and you have told us what to do and we haven't always done it. You've told us what we shouldn't do. You've told us what we should do. That's where confession comes in. And if we aren't careful, confession takes over and we take over and we become the center of everything. And that's not what worship is about. When the Levites led 
the people in confessing their sins, it began with worship. It began with praise. This is who God is. God made the world. Everything that has life, God did that. And God called Abraham. And then he rescued his people out of Egypt. And he gave them this law. And he guided them through the wilderness. And he provided them food, water. That's the background. And then in that light, we can say, we have not done as we should do. It begins with worship. And it continues, by the way, if you notice, go through chapter 9 again. Uh, It isn't like, okay, this is the part about God, and then this is the part about us. Even the part about us as sinners, it's still God is there. God is gracious. God is faithful. God does not abandon. God warns. Our worship, our thinking should be centered on God rather than ourselves. And I, just, I was just struck by it and just sort of overwhelmed me the fact that in doing what we think is very spiritual, I'm confessing that I'm a sinner. Something that most people today say don't do they would not acknowledge that they are sinners. So we think, look at me, I'm doing a good thing, I'm confessing my sins. And yet even in that, if we're not careful, we're making ourselves the center of things. Rather than acknowledge that it is God who made us, it is God who redeemed us, it is God who is gracious. I think Nehemiah chapter 9 has much to teach us in the matter of confession, if we would but listen. Let's pray together. Father, it almost seems inevitable that even your wonderful gifts we somehow twist and pervert. And so the ability to confess because you've made us aware of our sins, somehow we twist that and it comes all about us. I thank you for what we see in this chapter that your people after years of Ezra's instruction as they listen to your word they recognize who you are and praise you for who you are the one who made all things the one who redeemed his people who is patient gracious and in that context they admit the sins of their forefathers their own and their situation. In our thinking, in our praying, as we read your word, by your grace, may you be at the center of all things. We are so strongly tempted to make ourselves the center of all things. Ever since Eden, we want to be like God. We want to be over all things. We are dependent, we are creatures, and you are our gracious creator and redeemer. We thank you that you brought us together today to worship you, to be reminded of who you are. We pray for Jeff as he moves back home to Minnesota that you would watch over him. Thank you that Jacob Archer could be with us today and we ask that you would watch over him and Zip and give them strength. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.